Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today I'm very excited to welcome to the show Dr. Glenn Whitman, who is a cardiothoracic surgeon and an intensivist. He is the director of the cardiothoracic surgical ICU here at Johns Hopkins, and we are going today to talk about Swan-Gans catheters, that's PA catheters, both a little bit on why one might use them and a little more on how to use them once you've got them in. Glenn, thanks so much for coming on the show. I can't wait to see how this goes. All right. Fantastic. So let's start right away. Let's talk about the indications for a Swan-Gans catheter. Now, I just want to mention to people out there, if you're hearing this and you haven't listened to past episodes and you're wondering how to go about placing them or what exactly is a Swan-Gans catheter, there is a prior episode on tips and tricks for line placement. You can go back and listen to that for exactly the step-by-step approach to placing one of these. We're not going to go over that today. Uh, We'll just touch briefly on a few uh, points there, but we want to start by talking about why one might place a PA catheter. So, Glenn, what would make you want to put one of these in a patient? As Jed knows, I I spend all of my time in a cardiac intensive care unit, so a tremendous amount of what I'm going to say pertains to cardiac surgery And to the degree that it's generalizable, great. But a swan is incredibly useful in managing post-cardiotomy shock. And there are certain types of patients who are more likely to finish their operations in some degree of shock, and they're the ones who should get a swan placed prior to being put asleep um, in the operating room. A GFR that's for sure less than 30, maybe less than 60 or 50, um, would be one, two, patients with pulmonary hypertension because their right sides can be so difficult to manage and you don't know what's going on with the left side because the right side's flunking out. Three, circa rest greater than 30 minutes. You never know what's going to happen after circa rest and how things are going to, to pan out. And I think that one needs to be prepared in that group of patients for postcardiotomy shock. All transplants and 
ventricular assist devices. It's very hard. In both of those situations, it's all about managing the right ventricle, but in so doing, frequently you need to know just how full the left ventricle is and to what degree pulmonary hypertension is hurting your right ventricle. Um, Patients with poor ejection fractions, arbitrarily less than 30%. Redo coronary bypass surgery. The problem with, even if you go in with a good ejection fraction, you never know in redo cabbage surgery whether you're going to spray debris during your dissection and you'll end up with an MI that you weren't aware of and you can limp off bypass. Um, But I think those would be the indications for a Swan-Gantz catheter in, in my world. With the addition of respiratory failure postoperatively, and you just can't figure out whether it's primary lung or cardiac. Okay. Now, a lot of things you can pick up by doing bedside echoes, mm-hmm. but not everybody's as good as everybody else. Chest tubes get in your way. The lungs get in your way. The dressings get in your way. So it's hard to rely upon bedside echoes. Um, but as a rule of thumb, those are, that's the way I, I would use swans. Great. All right. Let's go through these uh, and, and let me pick your brain for a little more detail on some of these indications. So a bad GFR, so uh, that's glomerular filtration rate. We're talking about patients with poor renal function going into surgery. Why do you want a swan in those patients? We're learning more and more about these patients, but I think that managing filling pressures the ability to discriminate between good cardiac output with a low blood pressure versus normal blood pressure with a lousy cardiac output, it all matters to the kidney. And if you've got a marginal kidney, um, you, I think you can decrease the incidence of ATN by knowing, by being able to discriminate between blood pressure and cardiac output. And you never want to have a low blood pressure monitoring um, in dealing with the uh, borderline kidney. You want the gradient across the, the renal vein to be, across the kidney to be good. So you want the mean arterial pressure minus the CVP to be above a certain number. 60 or 70 is a good one. While at the same time, you want adequate oxygen delivery. Absolutely. So you're going to use your swan to tell you if you have poor cardiac output, maybe you need inotropy to help get this kidney better perfused, whereas if you have your cardiac output is good, then you may need some afterload increase, like a norepinephrine. That is exactly right. Awesome. All right. So that's why it's going to be helpful to have a SWAN for poor GFR, because your SWAN is going to be able to help you figure out your cardiac output. Now, maybe we should take a minute here and talk about how do you use a SWAN to calculate cardiac output. There's I believe two ways that, that you uh, use this. Um, the first would be to have your nurse shoot a cardiac output number with thermal dilution. Is that right? Absolutely. That's one way. Okay. And what's the second way? It's to use the FIC. Now, for $30 or $35, you get a thermal dilution cardiac output. For $180, you get a continuous mixed venous SAT cardiac output. And in those swans that give you... Com- continuous cardiac output outputs, they come in two varieties. One is continuing to measure the, um, the change in temperature from around, from the level of the right atrium or, S, or low SVC to the pulmonary artery that they have a, they have a 
a, um, a temperature sensor in the distal swan that's continuing to, that continues to read a difference in temperature, or they simply do the FIC calculation through their own software. But what they're really doing is looking at mixed venous saturations, and you plug in what the arterial saturation is and what the hemoglobin content is, and, and it gives you a continuous FIC cardiac output. Um, those are the ways, those are the two cardiac outputs. Recognizing that thermodilution, that FIC always trumps thermodilution, that when you th- shoot that bolus of, of, um, Cold of saline, that's a different temperature than the patient, if that gets washed back and forth across the tricuspid valve, all bets are off in terms of what your what your cardiac output's going to be. Um, furthermore, when the the shooter shoots it at different times in the respiratory cycle or pushes with different speeds, um, you you never know what you, you have a ten to fifteen percent um, just on that. You have a ten to fifteen percent difference in cardiac output. Shoot to shoot to shoot, and so frequently we shoot. Not frequently. In order to be acceptable, we shoot three cardiac outputs, and we add them up and divide by three, and they've got to look similar to each other. Mm-hmm. You can't have a cardiac output of six, three, and one. Add them all up and get three point three or whatever you get. Right. Okay. So the FIC, and we won't go into all the details because this is something really better demonstrated uh, on paper to help you. But in general, tell me if this is a good summary, Glenn. Is that what you're doing is looking at the difference between your arterial saturation and your venous saturation, taking into account your hemoglobin, and the uh, larger the difference, meaning the more oxygen the body is taking out for a given hemoglobin, the lower the cardiac output. Is that right? That is exactly right. All right. So long as the patient's not shivering um, or being frozen, um, that would be the, the and, and as you pointed out, you have to take into consideration the hemoglobin. So you can't have, have a hemoglobin that's changing in the midst of your um, assessment of mixed venous sat. By the way, which is why if you're facile with arithmetic, <clears throat> if at any given time you're looking at a mixed venous, you should be asking what's the hemoglobin because then you could immediately compute the arterial venous oxygen difference, which then normalizes for what your hemoglobin concentration is. AVO2 difference is the normalizer. All right. And you, since we're on it, why don't you just, you want to tell us what exactly is the AVO2 difference? It's the amount of oxygen extracted from every 100 cc's of blood that's flying around a patient uh, expressed in cc's per 100 cc's of blood. And a normal AVO2 difference is 3 to 5 cc's. And we won't go through the arithmetic, but if you take the AVO2 difference and divide it into 125 cc's per minute per meter, 125 cc's per minute, which is the amount of oxygen a person uses at rest normally per meter squared, it'll give you the person's cardiac index. All right. So if this is confusing, don't worry about it. Look up the FIC equation or ask someone to demonstrate it for you. But in general, the key to take away from this is that a large difference between your arterial and venous sats or mixed venous arterial sat and mixed venous sat in the setting of a normal hemoglobin is bad it means your body is having to extract a lot of oxygen from the hemoglobin because presumably the cardiac output is not good whereas if your difference is small with a normal hemoglobin then that would be normal it does not your body doesn't need to take a huge amount of hemoglobin out because your heart is delivering it at a at a flow and at a rate that is sufficient for your tissues the slower the blood goes around your body, the more oxygen you have to take out of any given 100 cc's of blood to meet your needs. And there, 
by increasing your arterial venous oxygen difference, which decreases your mixed venous oxygen sat. Absolutely. All right. So you have a continuous a continuous mixed venous oxygen sat monitor. It allows you to calculate continuous cardiac output. So, Or if you don't have that, for a dollar, you can send off a blood gas from the distal port, and that'll give you a mixed venous sat from the distal port of the swan. And although it's a little cumbersome and it's not as elegant as having a continuous readout with an infrared outgoing signal and incoming signal and all the other super-duper stuff about that continuous mixed venous swan, but it'll help you. In fact, we have a rule. When a person comes back without a continuous mixed venous swan, we shoot a thermodilution and we send off a mixed venous, and they need to agree. And once they agree, we can follow the thermodilution from then on. But if they don't agree, then we're stuck with intermittent mixed venuses. Great. So you're going with the FIC. So in the, in the contest between the, the thermal dilution and the FIC, we go with the FIC. All right. So let's go back to the list of indications. We talked about the bad GFR. Pulmonary hypertension, pretty self-explanatory. A swan allows you to watch continuously and measure pulmonary pressures. And, and therefore, you can assess whether your right ventricle is doing well or doing poorly by cardiac output. Also, as the CVP rises, is it a function of um, afterload on the right ventricle or not? Well, in order to measure the afterload on the right ventricle, you need something in the pulmonary artery to measure its pressure. Right. Okay. Uh, and so this is giving us a lot more information than just a CVP, right? If we had only a central line and we were measuring CVP and it was going up, we don't know if that's from the RV, from the pulmonary pressure, even from the LV backing up. Exactly. All right. Let's talk about circ arrest greater than 30 minutes. Give me a little more information on why you want to swan in patients who are going to have a circ arrest greater than 30 minutes. So I made this up, but I made it up with a bunch of really good heart surgeons. But um, we do a lot of circ arrest here at Johns Hopkins, and a lot of circ arrest time can lead to a lot of washout, a lot of acid production early on postoperatively. And it can get very confusing as to who's making acid and why. And uh, by having a swan and knowing that your oxygen delivery is, is adequate, you can say, okay, this is, this is coming from vascular beds, but it's not the result of poor oxygen delivery. So the key here is you want to know what's causing this lactate or what's causing this acidosis. Is it because the heart is not working sufficiently or is it from something else? And the swan helps you with that. That's right. And when you're cold, the, the different aspects of your body are becoming more or less ischemic. They tolerate that, that uh, circ arrest differently. And, and it can be idiosyncratic. It also can depend upon what the atherosclerotic burden of the patient is. So with no evidence, um, this group said prolonged circ arrest time, better off floating a swan. All right. Transplants and VADs, you commented on anything to add there in terms of specifically why you want a swan? No, other than it's those two operations are all about managing the right ventricle. God forbid you have to manage the left left ventricle in a transplant, then you're really in trouble. Right. Swan can only help you there. But in general, it's all about the right ventricle in those two operations, and a swan really can be helpful. All right. And for people who want a little more information, when you do it, we're, when we say VAD here, we're talking about an LVAD. A, vent- a left ventricular assist device. Right. And so for an LVAD, you are assisting the LV, and so the LV has that help, but you are doing nothing to help the RV. And so if you have problems with your RV, you can be in big trouble. 
And all LVAD placement problems are the result of RV problems. It's all about the right ventricle and left ventricular assist device surgery. Great. And then postoperatively as well, we need to watch that RV really carefully. Exactly. All right. Poor EF. So you mentioned that this is kind of arbitrary, but we say maybe less than 30%. Why? Why do we want the swan in these people? Whenever you make the heart ischemic for whatever period of time, um, when it recovers, um, it never works at full function. It, it's always um, hurt to some degree by the ischemia time. The better you, pro- uh, ideally, we would put all hearts in suspended animation and they would never know that they were ischemic. In reality, we don't do that. So if you're starting with an EF of 60%, you have a huge window in which the heart can experience um, an ischemic reperfusion injury and everything's still going to be fine. But as soon as you're working with a 30% EF, then if you hurt it, you can really, really be in trouble. And then you're managing postcardiotomy shock. And I, I find it very difficult to ma- manage postcardiotomy shock just looking at a right-sided pressure. Okay. So now let me ask you, in the operating room, you have a T, usually with most patients in, in cardiac surgery, you're going to have a TEE probe in. Very sensitive for cardiac ischemia, wall motion abnormalities. But at least here, we don't have temporary or disposable uh, probes that we leave in in the ICU. So we don't have the ability to keep a TEE in. And as you mentioned, there are difficulties in post-cardiac surgery patients getting good windows on a TTE. So the swan helps us. Now, if you did have continuous TEE, would you still feel as strongly about wanting a swan? Yes. Um, No, because left ventricle is usually the problem in postcardiotomy shock or frequently the problem. And in those situations, the TE echo didn't tell you just how well that left ventricle is working. And you can immediately see the afterload on that left ventricle and manipulate it because you know what the patient's blood pressure is. Um, And you also know how full it is. So preload, afterload, contractility, it's all visualizable with a transesophageal echo. When you're dealing with the right ventricle, though, even with a TE echo, yes, you can see it hypocontractile. Yes, you can see that it's full or it's empty, but you can't see what the PA pressures are. And that's the afterload on the right ventricle. So TE echo can tell you your right ventricle's failing, but it, it, it doesn't give you the unless you're continually looking at the right ventricular systolic pressure by looking at that backflow across the tricuspid, um, it doesn't give you the minute-to-minute knowledge of what the afterload on the RV is. Okay, so you like to have the swan anyway because you want to get that information about the RV afterload. Exactly. Um, And for sure, the LV... When we walk out of the operating room, I don't have a transesophageal echo anymore. So even if you had a a TEE staying in, you'd still want the swan for the RV. But in our in our case, where we don't have the TEE staying in, we like you like to have the swan for both. Exactly. All right. You mentioned for uh, redo cabs, the risk of spraying debris and and having an MI. So same thing. You may see that in the operating room with wall motion abnormalities on your TEE, but you don't have it post op, and you'll you want the swan for that. Exactly. All right, and then post-op respiratory failure. So this is, uh, you mentioned wanting to be able to differentiate between lung and cardiac causes. Say a little more about that. How's your swan helping you make that differentiation? if my hypoxia is the result of um, left ventricular failure, then then I know it's a cardiac problem. And if I know my my cardiac output's great and my, my left ventricular function's good and my PA pressures are 
Well, in hypoxia, your PA pressures all of a sudden become very erratic, and they may not be – your pulmonary artery diastolic may not be a good estimate of what your left ventricular pressure is. Um, then a swan can help you distinguish whether it's, it's back up from the left side that's contributing to pulmonary edema and hypoxia or not, along with the occasional hole in the heart um, where you can look at – particularly if there's left to right shunning, you can see a step up, which you wouldn't be able to see otherwise without a swan. Um, that's a step up in oxygen. Uh, excuse me, uh, an oxygen step up because there's a hole in the heart and the left side of pressures are higher than the right side of pressures and so flow is going from left to right and you get this abnormal increase in oxygen content on the right side where you should get no increase in oxygen content on the right side of the heart. Um, so it can help you figure out what's a primary and what's a, a cardiac cause of uh, pulmonary dysfunction. So let me push you a little bit on, on the uh, going outside of the cardiac world. Because I would argue that, as you said, some of this is easy to extrapolate. So would it be fair to say that regardless of whether a patient is post-op from cardiac surgery or any other kind of surgery, that a swan will be useful when a patient is in shock and you don't know whether there's a cardiac component or not to the shock? I would say that's true. I would also say that essential venous sat can obviate the need for a swan in many situations that you just described. For example, a person comes into the emergency room hypotensive and tachycardic, and you don't know whether this is cardiac or, or uh, distributive. Well, if the mixed venous, if the central sat is 75 or 80%, the guy's got a decent cardiac output. And now this is all of a sudden in the realm of distributive as opposed to cardiogenic shock. Um, but nevertheless, I think it can get hard. Especially, would it be true that if you have a patient who you know comes in with a poor heart, they've got a cardiac output of, I mean, a, uh, an EF of 30%, and they, and get they possibly could be septic, then you really have no idea what you're doing. Right. And well, I have no idea what I'm doing. Now, I may lean on swans more than a lot of people. It's possible. But um, but I like leaning on them. Great. All right. So for those patients, it's helpful because, for example, they're hypotensive. You know they're septic. You know they have a component of cardiogenic. You don't know which is which, and it's hard to choose a presser if you don't know what you're treating. Exactly. All right. So let's talk about contraindications for who would you want a swan in? Let's say you had a patient who fit one of these six categories you laid out. But there's something that tells you I can't put a swan. What are those things? What are the contraindications where you say, nope, can't put a swan in this patient? Well, if a guy's got bifascicular block and you don't have a and, – and floating a swan in someone with bifascicular block, it can lead to complete heart block, and then you can really be in trouble. Okay. So I think that that's the, that's the immediate one. I think that um, I, I don't regard – someone who's anticoagulator who has a, a coagulopathy as a, as a reason to not put a swan in, but it's certainly a reason to never wedge the swan because you can get yourself into tremendous trouble if you were to rupture a pulmonary artery. Um, but, Jed, you'd think that I would have off the top of my head, other than the, the possibility of causing complete heart block, a reason for not floating a swan. 
we we don't have a lot of complications in floating swans. Some people have have a, have a lot, but but we don't. I mean, the complications are all associated with gaining access or with being heavy-handed with floating the swan, so that you do perforate the a pulmonary artery. Um, those are where the complications come in. Um, Perhaps by floating, having floated a lot, we, we, and floating a lot even now, we don't have the kinds of complications that people who don't float many find themselves um, in. Sure. So I think there's some things maybe um, you probably wouldn't uh, place the cortis in the first place in someone who uh, has an infection over that particular part of their body, you know, and a skin infection over the, the neck, obviously. Uh, and then... Uh, would you put one in someone who had a, a endocarditis on the right side? Absolutely. Okay, so you're not worried about knocking something off the valve. Maybe I should be worried about it, but I'm not worried about it. Okay. Um, all right. And you said anticoagulation, not a problem except for the wedging. So let's talk about wedging for a second. Do you always, sometimes, or never get a wedge pressure when you have a swan? So we never get wedges um, unless we're totally lost. But we, we assume that the pulmonary artery diastolic pressure, where the flow is the slowest, um, is an approximation of the left atrial pressure, which is an appro- because there are no valves between the pulmonary artery. And, and the reason the pulmonary systolic isn't used is there's a lot of friction associated with the blood going through the pulmonary circuit. So you, you can't use that as a, a measure of what the left atrial pressure is. But in diastole, just before systole, that's a good... A good and has always been a good estimate of what your left atrial pressure is, as long as you don't have pulmonary artery hypertension. And the left atrial pressure is not exactly what you want to know. You actually want to know what the left ventricular end diastolic volume is. That's what you're really after, mm-hmm. uh, because you're not actually interested in that. You're interested in how stretched the myofibril is, but you can't get that. Volume would be better. That you get with a TE echo, but you can't get that with a swan. So left ventricular end diastolic pressure is sort of would be good, but you can't get that. So left atrial pressure when the mitral valves open is the same as the left end, left ventricular end diastolic pressure. So you can't get that, but we're getting closer. And then a wedge can give you the left atrial pressure, but it's dangerous. And all of our guys are going to get 30, 40, 50, 60,000 units of heparin during the procedure. They, you cannot run the risk of perforating a pulmonary artery when you float a swan in cardiac surgery. And so we don't wedge them unless the patient's pulmonary hypertensive, and then they should get wedged prior to any heparin being given, and it should be extremely carefully. And then you'll have a measure of just how off the PAD is from the, the pulmonary artery diastolic pressure is from the wedge, and you could use that as an offset for the rest of your care postoperatively. I want to say one other thing, and that is that in cardiac surgery, we have this advantage that no one else has, and that is that with a swan in place, coming off pump, we see exact. We have people's eyes and hands on the heart, and so you can, in fact, plus you've got a transesophageal echo now almost all the time, at least in the United States in many centers. So you can say, this pulmonary artery feels perfect, um, and this right ventricle is squeezing and crinkling just the right amount, and the left ventricle looks great by TE echo, and then you can look up at the monitor and say, and that's associated with a PAD of X and a CVP of Y. 
And you can watch that, and then you can watch what happens to it as it closes. And you can then say, after you've closed, this guy likes a preload that's consistent with a PAD of whatever it is and a CVP of whatever it is, and then you're way ahead of the game in managing that guy's intravascular volume for the next 12, 24 hours. Um, there no, I don't know any other specialty that has that, that knowledge of what's going on inside the heart, where you've touched it, you can see it, and you've correlated all of these things with filling pressure numbers. And, and I think it, it can add a tremendous amount of knowledge to the way you manage that patient when they do the things they do. Yeah, that's great. I agree. Now, I want to back up one second, just clarify for some people, you mentioned that uh, if you have pulmonary hypertension, that's a scenario where you, you might want to wedge to see what the wedge is compared to the pulmonary artery diastolic. And that's because if your pulmonary pressures are high enough, then your pulmonary artery diastolic is not showing you what's happening in the LV. It's showing you what's happening in the pulmonary vasculature. That's exactly right. And On the other hand, it's my impression that all things being equal, that relationship, that step off, the fact that the PAD may be 15 tor higher than the 15 centimeters of water higher than the um, left atrial pressure, remains constant. And you can, and even if it doesn't remain constant, if the PAD was 35, and now all of a sudden, and that's what it was when you came off, even if you don't know what the wedge pressure really was, and the PAD pressure drops to 20, and the patient gets hypotensive in their cardiac, okay, they're dry. Right. So following trends can be helpful even if you don't know exactly what it's correlating with. Right. All right. So, great. Now, we talked about contraindications, uh, not a lot of absolute contraindications in your mind. Now let's talk about what, what do you actually use this wand for. So you've got it in. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, you can help differentiate between different types of shock. Uh, what else are you using? How about to titrate medications are you using it for And so that? in cardiac surgery, it, it really helps me lay off the... The, the, um, the crystalloid. If I know the guy's got a decent cardiac output and he's been well revascularized and he's hypotensive postoperatively, I don't, hypotension doesn't equal volume. The guy's preloaded, the heart's got a great cardiac output, I'll use an alpha agent as opposed to just giving more volume. Without the swan, I think most of us, when someone's hypotensive, we give volume. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and part of what I want to emphasize here is that when you're giving volume, you're doing it to increase cardiac output. That's the only reason one would give volume, to increase cardiac output. So if you already know that your cardiac output is fine, then there's no reason to give the volume. But if you don't know, then at least our current practice, which is being called into question more and more, but our current practice, if you don't know, is to give the volume. All right. So... Let's talk about other things. What about uh, titrating medications? How do you use a swan in a patient where you're titrating a medication? Like, for example, let's say a post-operative patient with poor EF. You've started them on a, uh, an inotrope, whether it's epinephrine or milrinone or dobutamine. What are you looking for that your swan is helping you with to titrate that medication? I'm really looking at oxygen delivery. And in that respect, I'm looking at either the thermodilution or the mixed venous sat. And when I, and as embarrassing it is, my algorithm for managing postcardiotomy shock is really straightforward. I want to make sure that they are perfectly preloaded. I want to make sure that their afterload is reduced to the degree that their kidneys and brain will still get perfused. But after that, I don't care. And, after, and then I'm using inotropes. 
And if the pressure is okay, I would like to use pure beta. And if the pressure is not okay, I want to use an alpha and a beta. But how does that, how do we really uh, implement that kind of thinking? In many places, we just use the same drug all the time, as in epi. Mm-hmm. And if you have too much blood pressure with epi, but just a marginal cardiac output, well, you can't lower the epi, so you've got to get rid of the alpha somehow. You can get rid of the alpha that's associated with the epi with nicardipine, nitroglycerin, or nitroprusside. And, some, and then one would say, well, whoa, you don't want to use nitroglycerin. I mean, that's a preload reducer. True, true. I, I'm not going to argue with that, but in, in, when you consider that nitride's $1,000 a day and nitroglycerin's $10 a day, you can turn the nitroglycerin up and you can deal with the preload reduction by giving some more volume if you have to. It, sometimes it's not even a problem. Um, and nicardipine, by the way, at least here right now, is 40 bucks a day. So it's a nitroglycerin, nicardipine, always, nit- nitroprusside, never, um, because of the cost. But, um, I mean, that's the way I use it. And then, and then, but you could say in the middle of all of this, switch to dibutamine. Right. Or I'd me- say, okay, or, or switch to milrinone. And then sometimes you end up on milrinone and vaso because the milrinone dilates them too much. And I say, well, okay, epi, nitro, milrinone, vaso. I mean, who cares? And, but those are the kinds of things that go through my mind all the while. It's all about cardiac output and um, pulmonary pressures and my mixed venous sat. It's, it's, it's actually all about that. And then you might say, well, you mean you don't look at their patellar temperature and their big toe temperature and their minute-to-minute or hour-to-hour urine output? And the answer is, I do. But but in all honesty, you know, you can play this game both ways. You could say, if their kneecap and big toe are warm, and if they're making urine, their mixed venous sat's going to be okay and you don't need a swan. And I say, true. On the other hand, if the mixed venous sat's great, the blood pressure's great, Listen, I'm all for physical exams, but shy of a of a peripheral arterial embolus, the rest of the guy's going to look okay. And if he doesn't urinate, he's going to he's going into ATN. I don't, I don't know what more to do with that. I, I I I've reached the point where if the person doesn't urinate, but I've maximized the gradient across their kidney and I've maximized their oxygen delivery, I actually am now capable of going to sleep at night. If their creatinine goes up. It goes up. If they stop peeing, they stop peeing. I don't know anything else to do for them other than to echo the kidney and see whether they've got flow to it. But, but you know, short of tying off the ureter or having renal arterial stenosis or renal vein thrombosis, which doesn't happen, um, I, I use the swan the way I just described. Yeah, and, and so I think it's a great point that we too often chase urine output. There's a lot of reasons, as we've talked about in other episodes, postoperatively to have poor urine output. Certainly you could be volume down, but you could be going into ATN that's not going to be volume responsive anyway. Or you could simply have the stress response to surgery and end up with a release of ADH, which is a very natural thing to happen postoperatively, and that may be why you're not urinating. So chasing urine output uh, in the setting of everything else being pretty good, lactate, mixed venous if you've got it, cardiac output if you've got it, is probably not the way to go, certainly not with a lot of volume. All right, so... Let's say you've got your swan in, you've got a patient on whatever combination, let's just say they're on milrinone and you don't need the vaso because the pressure's fine. 
what are you titrating to specifically? Are you titrating, we often will say, a cardiac index greater than 2.2 in the unit? Do you do that or do you look at something else? That's exactly what I do. And why that number? No good reason. Um, Because um, cardiac index of 2.2, a cardiac index of 2.2 is basically an AVO2 difference of around 5, 5 and a quarter. Your mix V. All right, everybody, hang in here for this one. All right, so if I've got a hemoglobin of 10, and I'm using up 5 cc's of oxygen. A hemoglobin of 10 means I've got 14 cc's of oxygen in every 100 cc's of blood. If I'm going to use up 5, which is the amount of AVO2 difference you get with a cardiac index of 2.2, well, 5 goes into 12, 20. 2.5 is an AVO2 difference of 5. An AVO2 difference of 6 gives you an index of 2.5. One thereabouts, but in that range, which is borderline, but let's pretend. So let's. So I'm going to use up five or six cc's of oxygen. I start out with fourteen. So now I end up on the venous side with eight cc's of oxygen, or eight and a half cc's of oxygen. So eight over fourteen is four over seven, which is sixty-four. So then I have a sixty-four percent mixed venous sat which correlates to a PO2 of around 35. Okay, in my mind, a PO2 of around 35 is enough to drive oxygen into cells. And furthermore, in a really lousy study, but nevertheless, a huge study done 40 years ago, which still feels true today, when your mixed venous sat drops below 50, meaning your PO2 drops below 27 on the on the other side of the capillaries, your mortality starts to skyrocket. Up until then, it's relatively the same. So using a cardiac index of 2.1 or 2.2 means I'm going to be, for a hemoglobin of 10 or 9, I'm going to be in a mixed venous sat of 60% range. I have some margin away from that sat of 50%, which correlates with a PO2 of 27 which is where the driving pressure starts to really drop and the lactates start to really rise. So as I'm t- I, so I use that number. However, in that situation, now I am interested in what's the urine output, what are successive lactates, how does the guy's ankle feel. By the way, as much as I just poo-pooed physical exam, if as I'm tri- titrating pressors, if that line of coldness goes from the mid-metatarsal and starts going to the malleolus, and then to the mid-shin, and then to the knee as I'm titrating it, and the urine output drops, it's no good. Back up on the, back up on the beta, because the guy's going into shock. And I use that physical exam that way. All right. So you're titrating cardiac index greater than 2.2. What do you do with the patient whose cardiac index is 2? but their lactate is staying at one and a half. Well, if they don't have kidneys, it's great, because then you don't have to worry about perfusing them. And if they can count from to one to ten and talk to you, you just plain live with it. And some guys have just plain lousy hearts. And the idea, and the heart failure guys know this much better than I do, you live with these lousy cardiac outputs. But if they don't make lactate, and if their creatinine stay, the, stay okay, if they make urine... By the way, urine output is a lousy measure of GFR and, and renal perfusion. You know, you pee out one to two liters a day. 
You filter 200 liters a day. So you're peeing out 1% to 2% of what you filter. It's an extremely insensitive Mm -hmm. index of renal perfusion. If you have no urine output, I agree. You have no GFR. But if you have a little bit of – if you have some urine output, if you have two liters of urine output, you could still have a quarter of your GFR. And it would still be 4 or 5% of what your your flow is. And the reason I'm talking about this was when do I tolerate lousy cardiac indices? If the kidneys are perfused, if the guy's not making lactate, if he's able to mentate, and you've got a heart that just is it, – it's just not going to do better than that. But the guy's is accustomed to it. All right. Great. Great points. Now, when do you take it out? What makes you say, okay, this patient does not need this one any longer? Two different times. One is when you start feeling comfortable that the CVP really is a measure of of what the left ventricle is doing, then you don't need a swan anymore. Um, and the second would be when, um, well, I guess I would say that's always the case. And uh, and the second would be when when you've decided that wherever you are, the guy's accommodated to whatever his cardiac output is and and there's nothing that you think is going to happen over the near future that's going to perturb that state so as an example a guy struggles come coming off he comes off off on let's pretend um lots of epi and lots of milrinone and lots of norepinephrine really skimming the treetops you have the swan and you use it constantly and over the next two and a half days the balloon pump comes out Guy's got a CVP of 15, too high. Um, but his PA pressures are understandable, let's say 40 over 20. And and his mixed venous sat has been in the 55 to 65% range with a hemoglobin of 8 to 10. And you're now on low-dose epi. All right. You know, you, you can use that CVP of 15. If it starts to go to 20, it's going in the wrong direction and the patient needs more help. If it starts to drop, you're doing fine. Um, and you can, use, you, can use his, you can use a physical exam. And now you're in the third day. This is when the incidence of infections with swans go way up. It's time to, in my opinion, it's time to get it out. And you can wean the low-dose epi or whatever you're on at the time to physical exam, urine output, creatinine, and CVP. Now, you said uh, you're going to feel confident that your CVP is a reflection of your LV uh, function. A lot of people are thinking, wait, I thought CVP tells us more about the RV. So it does. But if your RV has been okay and your PA pressures have been constant, that mean, meaning that, you're, they're, that they're not reactive, that they're, that they're indicative of a, a patient whose wedge is, let's say, 25 or something like that, I, I don't see a reason why I have to know them. And that's been this, that way for 24 hours or 36 hours. And that the CVP of – so that the guy's got a CVP of 15 in the face of PA pressures that are 40 over 25, let's pretend, with a wedge of 25. My, in, my inclination would be to say if things are, are stable, meaning I've been gradually coming off my drips, things are moving in the right direction, the guy's got a cardiac index of 2.2, I can use – urine output, signs of perfusion, CVP, as a measure of how this heart is doing as a whole. And I don't need a swan at that point. Okay. Now, the other thing some people are going to be saying is, I've been told CVP is totally useless. It doesn't tell us anything. It's no better than a coin flip. 
What do you say to that? I've read all of those papers, and they're so convincing. If you told me to handle a patient after open-heart surgery with peripheral IVs, I would say, why would you handicap yourself like that? Why would you make life so miserable for yourself? You're putting a person's life at risk. Now, I don't know a program that manages people with peripherals. I only There are programs, though, that rarely put swans in. Um, I think it's been shown that they don't do any worse than, than people who float swans. On the other hand, there are two papers out there with, with goal-directed perfusion after open-heart surgery where there is a difference in, in, in outcomes, and so meaning how long are you on pressors in the incidence of ATN. So... Uh, it gets back. I'm sure everybody's heard the same story. Floating a swan doesn't add anything to to the care of a patient. You sort of have to know how to use the swan. Now, I think it's pretty presumptuous of me to say that all those people who who take care of patients without swans wouldn't know how to use them if they floated them. I think that's crazy. We all know how to use swans in cardiac surgery world. Um, but I, as you can hear, I would feel incredibly handicapped to the detriment of the patient if I didn't utilize what I perceive is a very innocuous um, monitor, the SWAN, that gives me phenomenal information. And that's, and, but even without a SWAN, we're talking about the CVP itself, which you now, do you think maybe the, the fact that we're following trends, the fact that in cardiac surgery, you see what a CVP correlates with in terms of the what the heart looks like while the chest is still open. These things maybe make CVP in the cardiac surgery world a little more beneficial than kind of all comers. You heard what we use these preload numbers for, right? We, we correlate what the patient looks like intraoperatively as he comes off and before right. his chest is closed with what these preload numbers. This is unlike anybody else. We have this amazing relationship that we've seen in action. No one else gets to see what's under the chest when they're taking care of shock. Right. Um, so I think in that respect, this, it may be different than a person coming into the ER. I would argue, though, that if someone could open up that chest and look at what that heart's doing while you're, while you're volume resuscitating or starting drugs, boy, wouldn't you like to be able to do that? And a swan that was floated when the chest was open and you could see everything, or a CVP as well, uh, gives, you that, gives you that advantage. Um, but, you know, floating the CVP and having an echo at the same time and seeing what it all looks like, is great. Also, just remember, the CVP can get confusing because the LV can make it go up and the RV can make it go up. Um, a swan will differentiate which of, which of the sides of the heart are a problem. Um, but, you know, I used to, some institutions, every single open heart surgery patient has a swan. Some institutions pride themselves on only having CVPs in almost every patient. You heard where we sit, we're sort of in between. We have a group that don't get swans and a group that do. Um, and I am, I am always befuddled when someone says a CVP makes no difference in managing shock. I'm, I've read it. I don't know how to argue it. But, but you heard my thoughts on this subject. All right. So let's just summarize. Things that you use, data that you gather when you have a swan in place, Big one is looking at cardiac output or cardiac index, whether that's through uh, thermal dilution or through looking at the mixed venous and calculating a FIC. Either way is a cardiac output. 
you look at the pulmonary artery diastolic pressure as a marker for uh, LV uh, or as at least correlating with left ventricular and diastolic pressure and maybe volume. Uh, you are titrating medications because you're looking at uh, how well the patient is, uh, how well the patient's cardiac output is responding to those medications. Of course, you're doing that in conjunction with looking at other markers like lactate, urine output, uh, to the extent that that's useful, uh, and um, and other uh, markers of perfusion um, like mentation and physical exam. And uh, anything I'm missing there, Glenn, or are those the main uses of the SWAN? Those are the main uses. All right. Anything else that you want to add before we sign off? I think when I gave the example of 40 over 20 with a wedge of 25 was a poor example. The wedge is usually the PAD or less. The wedge is not greater than the PAD in, in almost any situation. If it is, you're not measuring the wedge right. So it should have been 40 over 20 with a wedge of 18, not 40 over 20 with a wedge of 25. All right. I think you said 40 over 20 with a wedge of 20. That's what I thought you said. So it could be the same. Yeah, it could be the same. All right. Fair enough. Glenn, thanks so much for coming on the show. I loved it. All right. That's it for today. Remember, check out the website at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can join the mailing list in the upper right-hand corner. You can access all the episodes, and you can leave comments. So please do. What did you think about today's episode? Do you agree, disagree? Do you play swans? Do you not? What do you use them for? Do you titrate your medications with or without a swan? Do you have TEE probes that stay in in the ICU? And if so, do you not use swans with them? We can all learn from what you have to share with us. And, of course, you can always email me, ACRAC at ACRAC.com. Thanks so much for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Glenn Whitman, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember... What you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.